0: Welcome to the one player podcast the show for solitaire board gaming I'm your host Albert and this is episode 80 tea time for aliens (laughs) welcome back everybody we're deep in the middle of May right now life is super busy for me and for Julius hey Julius hey there um so you know I think this is an episode
1: about small games mostly is that right? It happens to be an episode about small games, although that's not necessarily having anything to do with re- with relation to my busyness.
0: Yeah, oh yeah, life is just going crazy, and you know I don't expect to do much gaming at all again until sometime in June.
1: I fortunately try and take the take the time I want to do gaming. So since we don't have much to
0: say, fortunately this is going to be a, a fun show because we have an interview with Morton Morton Monrad Peterson. We'll let him do the talking.
1: Well, it does require. Both of us, because I went ahead and interviewed him. Okay, let's uh let's jump into the news. So before we get the news underway, I just wanted to wish everyone, hope that everyone had a good Mother's Day weekend. Um, I specifically wanted to call it out because I wanted to publicly thank my wife for, I suppose, putting up with me in this hobby. I know that she does game. She claims she's not a gamer herself, but she games plenty, so don't believe her. Um, but I know that she definitely puts up with a lot letting me go ahead and go out to game night, letting me do this podcast and supporting me in, in this hobby. And I just want to publicly thank her. She's a mother to both of our two little kids. And, you know, Mother's Day for us is something special. And I think for you also, Albert, that's also true, right?
0: Yes, that's right. Let's like just say happy Mother's Day to Danielle. Um, the same thing, she puts up a lot of the, the time I spent gaming and podcasting and she's very supportive of this. Um unfortunately she will be working she works every mother's day but uh happy mother's day
1: and so yeah we just want to call out to them and say thank you very much for everything that you guys do for us both with regards to gaming podcasting and just you know everything you make for our lives so hope that our wives in particular have a good mother's day and also to all the other mothers who listen or anyone else um with someone they're thinking of
0: the news. We don't actually have a lot of news this show. I've only got one thing. Um, friend of the show, Tim, shared with us. Me, there is a website called Project Aeon, which is basically uh, it's a website we could go and find and play through all the Lone Wolf books from the. Uh, what are the Lone Wolf books? These are books from the eighties. These were sort of a a Choose Your own Adventure style book, but more complicated, more like the the Fighting Fantasy game books. You know, you you have a character and you go adventuring in in this world. And Lone Wolf, you're some sort of a uh, monk or something, I believe. I never actually played the games. And I think there's like 20 or 30 books. And many of these are all available for free to play online. Or you could even, if you want, download them. And because it's all done through HTML, you know, you're not accidentally reading the wrong chapter and all that. You click a link and it takes you to the right place. So go check it out. Um, the, I'll include the links. It's projectaeon.org. Uh, and you can try all the books. There's no art,
1: but all the text is there. So you could have fun with those adventures. Another piece of news also is the Automata deck, excuse me, for Viticulture. Previously, it was only available with the expansion, and so they're releasing that now um, to be used just with the base game. And so the method that they're doing this is different. Currently, they don't have any cards that you can print out or buy. What they're doing instead is that you actually use an online deck of cards, And if you go to the website, which we'll link in the show notes, you'll draw a card and it'll digitally give you what it is that the card does, just like in the regular Autama deck. And eventually there's going to be another small expansion, and Morton will tell us more about this in his interview with us. But eventually there's going to be another small expansion, which will just have this Autama deck, hopefully is the plan. But until that point in time, there's just this one an Autama deck which uh, will let you go ahead and experiment with Autama and just the Viticulture base game. So you don't need to buy both Viticulture and Tuscany to get the solo game in viticulture if you want.
0: So that's great. So now if you if you don't have the expansion you could play the the solo game with just the base game you're saying. But if you have the expansion then you could add in other other features of the expansion into the game? Or is it the same exact experience?
1: It's a different experience because the cards are different in the expansion because the expansion cards will take advantage of some of the expansion mechanics. Okay. I do believe. But this one just uses the mechanics from the base game.
0: That is very cool. All right. And that's it for the news.
1: We don't have a very much news, but there's still quite a number of Kickstarters out. First one that I wanted to talk about is Besieged. And this one's coming from Cool Mini or not. So guess what? It has a lot of minis. <laughs> um yes, this is Besieged. It has plenty of minis. It comes with 70 min- minis in the game and there's more minis that are coming out. You can unlock the expansion. And there's other unlocks that are coming up with this. Pretty typical of Cool Mini to just throw expansion, throw minis into a game. With this one, I don't know if you've taken a look at it yet, Albert, but to me this looks like a more uh dynamic and deeper version of almost castle panic.
0: Yeah, that's a, that's the a first thing I saw. I thought when I saw the pictures.
1: Well, even looking at the sort of gameplay and how it works, this is another tower defense game where each of the players have actions to try and deal with the enemies but unlike in castle panic where actions are really just limited to fight or maybe occasionally use some special abilities here the characters are interacting with everything inside the citadel so you'll be able to get food or gold or new abilities or level up or fix the specific buildings or try and use the catapult or or fight enemies similar to castle panic and after that um the enemies will all go ahead and progress, and they'll all the the different enemies will all also work differently. It's not just a matter of where do they attack from it's how do they attack where are they coming from do they advance do they move around some and so the different enemies also work differently so it seems like it's a more uh deeper version of castle panic. I believe you said in the past you were a fan of castle panic I am I do like
0: it though. I like it a lot better with the expansion. It adds a lot more interesting
1: uh, gameplay. So hopefully this one will also have similar things. I like that this one comes with some sculpted tokens. It's almost a cool mini or not thing to do, but you get various resources. You get morale, food, and gold. And so with this one, if you get the Kickstarter game, so it's also going to come with tokens for the with, uh, excuse me, minis for the resources. Um... And I know the first thing I saw was the, the mini for the first player. I really want that mini for the first player to put it over in a different game that I backed <laughs> so that I
0: can have that. That's a lot to pay for a first player ex- uh,
1: token. Well, yeah, I wouldn't do it. I'd, probably, I'd get something on Shapeways if I did it. But I, I, like, the, I like the minis in this one. Um, as with, I suppose, most minis game, it's not so cheap. It's $90 for the whole game as long as with any stretch goals, it's not so cheap. So yeah, that's definitely a lot to get for just the minis, even with all the Kickstarter exclusives. But yeah, if you're a fan of minis and you like that type of game, so go ahead and take a look at this one. Very cool. Next one I want to talk about is Galaxy Command. Now, this one's a little bit interesting. For people who follow, um, Galaxy Command was actually a previous uh, entrant on on a Solitaire Print and Play contest. Um, where it was Microspace... Microspace... something? God.
0: Hmm. Microspace Empires, maybe?
1: Yeah, that's it. Okay. And so, originally it was solitaire only, and so they went and re-expanded it so that it would go from one to four players and still be playable in the same short amount of time, about 45 minutes. But it was originally a solitaire game that got expanded to be for multiple versions, and is now coming... Um, in a boxed set with preprinted cards. And the print on the cards looks really nice, really spacey. I, I like the art style that they put on this. Um, it, it comes together very nicely, and they did a they did a really nice job with that. Um, the gameplay plays pretty simply to me. I know that I went and pulled down the previous version, of the Microspace Empires version of the game, to take a look at it. The rules are pretty simple. Um, with this one, you basically have the deck of cards the, with the systems in it and with the events in it. And so you'll go through the, it's the systems deck and you're trying to explore and attack the systems. The idea is that you're using your military strength to explore the systems and attack them. And theoretically, you want your military strength to be high enough that after you roll a die, you can conquer the system's resistance. If you explore one, but you can't conquer it, so that, or if you try and conquer and explore one, you can't conquer it, so then your military strength will go down. So you can also choose to not try and conquer one, and then you won't theoretically lose your military strength. On the other hand, you want to keep working through the deck because you actually get an extra point at the end of the game if you manage to work your way through the whole deck. So that's the, the first decision that comes up in the game, but also you have a decision about after you... you You'll, after you finish the Explore phase, you'll be able to collect resources from anyone you already did. But then you'll be able to build the technology. And so here's another part of the major decision, it appears to me, about the game. Because there's a, a good number of technologies in the game. And you'll be able to decide, well, do you want to spend your resources to do military and make a more sure thing about trying to fight a battle? Or do you want to try and get some technologies? And some of the technologies are required to get your military strength up or to increase the amount of resources you can get or some other extra abilities or other points um, or to help you deal with some of the events that will occur. And so the technologies, there's, there's a good number of them and they're all quite different. And the game comes with a small map that you'll use to track which technologies you've used and which ones you've researched. So you get a good decision about whether or not you want to get which technologies and... I guess it's... I'm not sure how much it's relying on luck, or how much you're trying to optimize what it is that's come out based upon which cards it have come out. But you want to try and use that and then you deal with that to interact with the second deck of cards. And so the, deck of cards, the second deck of cards is the event cards. And so you'll go through the deck of cards twice. You'll skip some cards while you're doing that. And so there's different ones. There's invasions, there's revolts, there's a derelict ship... And you'll interact with these, and, and you'll want to have your technologies optimized to be able to deal with these events as they come up. So, at the end of the game, you'll total up your points for all the technologies you've discovered, and you'll possibly get points for how much you've explored or conquered the system. So, if you get all of them, so you'll get more, but you get a whole bunch of points. And so, really, you want to be focusing on those technologies and using your empire to get you the resources to get those technologies. And I think that's almost the entirety of the whole rule set. So it's a pretty simple rule set. Plays nice, simply, and easily. Plays in a small little play, in a play area, and now it's expandable to a full four players. So th- this one does come cheaper because of that. It's only twenty nine dollars. Um, it's a twenty nine dollar pledge. We'll we'll get you the game on this one, and it's going to be finished up back. It's going to be finished up on May twenty third, and it's already funded have you heard of microspace empires before i know you reminded me of the name a second ago
0: no i'd never heard of it actually
1: i was just guess i was guessing <laughs> good guess <laughs> thank you uh next up is lord of the dead now have you ever played hex counter microgames
0: mm, uh, it's not, not that i can think of no
1: did you ever play any hex encounter games not microgames
0: that's a publisher, right? No, I haven't played anything by them.
1: I think Hex Encounter Games is a mm. genre of war games uh, where you have okay. just counters going through a hex game, and it used to be that they had these micro Hex Encounter games. Um, I don't know how popular they are now. I, I know that I'm personally not so interested in these sort of things. I mean, looking over this one, I'll tell you why. I'm not why for me it's not a hit. The game comes on two boards, basically, and the and it comes on two boards and a and a bunch of counters so a bunch of small punch board counters and they're sending this out in a single envelope um so yeah you're probably guessing already that this is this is a small little game this is only an eight dollar game this is a micro game it's only an eight dollar game um but because it's such a small game so it's a single envelope, and so the board. And the rules are on flip sides. So I suppose if you want to read the rules while you're in the middle of the game, you can't. <laughs> that
0: that could can be a problem. it's on the
1: backside of the rules. I mean, maybe they'll have this up in PDF and you can print it out yourself. Um, I have no idea. <laughs> it also doesn't come with a box. They, they unlocked a stretch goal, so it comes with Ziploc baggies. Um, so that you can keep it all in a Ziploc baggie. I think for me, at one point in time, a micro game is just a little bit too micro. <laughs> for me, a micro game needs to have a box. It needs to have pieces, you know. I think this comes under the category of just too micro for me. Uh, I mean, this one even... I'm, I'm not even sure how m- micro it is in terms of gameplay or how long it takes. Because it's a Hex encounter Counter game. There's a bunch of pieces to it. There's There's a whole stack... Of tokens for There's 60 counters and then another 44 um, Lord of the Dead counters for the two sides. I mean, I don't even know how long it's supposed to take with these. There's those advanced rules and a whole set of trackers for the reinforcements. But I to me, this one just comes up as being too micro for me personally. That's just too small. Um, okay. But I suppose there's definitely someone out there for for classic games. F- there's someone out there who this would be perfect for.
0: Mm-hmm. Now you know it. It reminds me a little bit of the um, Victory Point games. Their games came in a, in a Ziploc bag originally, and and it reminds me of that. But it looks even smaller.
1: It does look even smaller. I think that this one it's it's just going to be two sheets that come in an envelope, or three yeah. sheets that come in an envelope.
0: Now one thing going for this game that's really neat is that it's 8 bucks. I'm
1: that's sorry. True. 9 bucks, right? No, 8 in the US. It's 8 bucks. It's 8 bucks, yeah. I mean, it's just going to come it shipping is really cheap for this one. It's just a letter. So, yeah. That's what that's what it has going for us is because the components are so minimal, it's really cheap. So, if you're into Hex Encounter and you want to try some new Hex Encounter and I suppose you're willing to provide a die in a box if you want to keep it yourself. So cool. Then this one's right up your alley, and you you may very well like this one. For me, it's just too tiny. It's just too tiny.
0: Uh, and you, you know, the art is nice. I, I'd seen it on Kickstarter just browsing through games, and I'd ignored it. But I, I'm surprised that it's such a tiny game just because of the artwork looking so impressive. I'm used to the micro games having, well, micro-quality art. Well, the
1: art is micro. I mean, which part of the art are you were talking about?
0: The let me open it again. Just the the cover page. It's got that that Lord of the Dead picture with that guy with his arm spread out.
1: Yeah, I'm not cool. sure if that comes. Oh, you're right. That's it's, on the yeah. cover of the board. But I mean, the board itself. Uh, if you take a look at the board, um, it's sort of clip. Party type graphics, with yeah, you're the, right. The buildings and the grasslands. Now that I personally like when I'm talking about small games, I'm perfectly happy with very basic, simple ones because it's small. I want it to be basic and simple and recognizable. I'm actually fine with the art. It's not the art that's going to blow me away, but I'm fine with the art. But I mean, it's not, you know, some of the really cool ones that I've talked about before. Hmm. Okay. It's one that I'm fine with.
0: I may have to find out more about this game. Oh yeah, something that interests you. It's only eight dollars. Yeah,
1: that's true. <laughs> <laughs> price price leaves you in.
0: Yeah, that's right. You know, it, it, it's so cheap. You could try it out and see if you like it. And if not, trade it away.
1: Give it to somebody else. I hear that, or post it up as a part of a bid on the chain of generosity. Yeah, there you go. There you go. So that's Lord of the Dead, and like I said, it's $8 pledge, and it's going to be finishing up on May 25th. Next one. I know, I just talked about miniatures, and I know I said that I really don't feel like dealing with miniatures. The next one's Project Elite, and this one's by Artipia. And this one, again, comes with a bunch of miniatures. And so for this one, it's going to be a $75 pledge, but I'll tell you, I'm really tempted by this one. Um, This is a real-time game. And so if you're a fan of something like Escape, um, where you're rolling dice and trying to have the dice come up with what you want as fast as you can to get stuff done on the board. So this looks like a very similar type of game. Every player will get uh, four die, and the four dice have different face face sides to them. You have the gun, you have the explore, you have the hand, the assist and you'll roll it, and you want to have the rolls come up so you can use your equipment and you or move around the board or interact with other pieces on the board, find more equipment. And you're trying to roll as fast as you can, and so you get two minutes. And those two minutes are roll-as-fast-as-you-can time. After the end of two minutes, you'll have a chance to stop and calm down and potentially help out a newer player. That's one thing I always had a problem with, Escape. I had to sort of play a fake game so that I could show the about how you move, how you roll, how things happen. So with this one, there's two minutes of frantic hecticness as you're going as fast as you can, and then you can pause, and you can help them. You can then explain things, and let uh, during those two minutes, the aliens will take their turn also. And so then you have hectic again for another two minutes. And so during those two minutes, you're rolling as fast as you can. So one of the other interesting things about the, the dice also is that one of the faces is an alien side, and so then you'll move the aliens closer by. I, th- I don't know if I mentioned what this game is about, did I? No, you did not. <laughs> Sorry about that. This game is an alien attack. You are on a base, and you're trying to defend the base against the aliens as they're coming up to attack your base. Um, there's actually a second side of the board, which works different, where you're at a crash site and the aliens are coming in. Um, to your crash site, but again, you're defending yourself against the aliens who are trying to come in and get you. Um, and so you're trying to shoot them off and you're trying to last through enough rounds. And um, so one of the sides of the dice has an alien side, and the aliens come in and every time you roll that side, you can't use the die. You have to use your other dice, and then you have to move an alien forward. So once you finish using the dice, you can re-roll again as long as you want for those two minutes, that every time you hit the alien die, the aliens will keep marching towards you. And this is different to me than the way it worked in Escape, where one of the dice was locked. And you sort of had to work together to get someone else to come over to unlock you, and if all of your dice got locked in single player, you were just kind (laughs) of stuck. You could use one of your, your treasures in Escape to unlock your dice, but... I I just felt like that worked really well in multiplayer, but in single-player it doesn't work as well. So here, having it work that it makes someone move forward, I just felt worked a lot better for me. And I like the theme. I like the the fact that it's got two minutes to go. And I like how a lot of the different um, minis, the aliens, are all very different. You have biters and runners and mini-bosses and big-bosses. And currently, the base game is going to come with 80 different minis, and each character does something different. Each character has their own mini. So, to me, I personally, I own Escape. I backed Escape back when it was on Kickstarter, and I really do like Escape. I like Escape mini. I like Escape solo. I like Escape multiplayer. Um, and this one looks like a much cooler version of the same type of real-time mechanic as Escape. So, ah, uh, lo- looks pretty cool to me. It's got minis, so it's expensive still, (laughs) but it looks really cool.
0: Oh, neat. Yeah, it looks fun. All right, next up is another game by Van Ryder Games. Now, if you've been following along with them, they are just in the process of getting ready to ship out Hostage Negotiator, and they're already starting another Kickstarter. This one isn't live at the time of recording, but should be live by the time you hear this. It'll be going live on Monday. Salvation Road is a post-apocalyptic game in which you, you live in a world that's uh, ravaged by famine, pestilence, war, death, that sort of thing, and you're trying to survive. And you've heard that there's a city that you could get to where everything is fine there and it's nice and safe. So your goal is to, to find all the resources you need and everything you need to try and make it towards that city. This game, it's for one of four players, and you could actually play with eight players using a variant rule. And each player controls a hero and a survivor. And the hero is somebody that's, you know, like the hero in a movie, a survivor is somebody that you're bringing along with you, but they aren't much help. For example, so the survivors
1: don't have abilities? They have
0: abilities, but they're not very good. For example, this one character, his name is Jose Berrios. He's the coward. All right, so. He cannot take damage until somebody, unless somebody else is taking damage, for example. Um, that sounds powerful. Well, no, because that means everybody else is taking damage. He can't be assigned the wounds. Let me let me rephrase it. Let me read this. Jose cannot be assigned wounds from a threat row, whether other undefeated characters at his location. So you may want to assign some of the wounds to him because he's healthier. You don't want to assign it to another person who's about to die. You don't have a choice. He He's hiding out. So, so they're going to be somewhat useful, but they're also going to tend to be a bit of a hindrance. Now, AJ has published a lot of, or uh, Fanwriter Games has published a lot of small box games. This is the first large size game, bringing a, a full size boards and lots of cards and counters and and all sorts of parts.
1: So, who's resisting you on the road to salvation? What do you fight against?
0: You're dealing in this game. You're dealing with elements. You're dealing with marauders. You have different obstacles. You're trying to to Avoid and deal with. Uh, You know, what you're trying to do to survive is find the resources you need. Food, gas, ammo, that sort of thing. Uh, This game will be $49 US to pledge. It is EU friendly, so shipping tends to be pretty cheap. And one thing I like about Van Ryder games is that they don't have a lot of extra add-ons to, to make things more complicated and, and just confuse things. You're, you're basically trying to fund to get the game. There's no extra add-ons t- that get unlocked or anything like that. But there are um, enhancements and things you can unlock. And these aren't going to be exclusives. These are going to be available to everybody.
1: So one thing that I like, by the way, about this, the board for this game looks like a hand-drawn map of the area. It's a very different sort of art style that they have um, where it looks like someone's desk with a hand-drawn map and along the sides are various different things like the car keys is the place where you're supposed to put the tokens for fuel and the scissors the medical supplies is where you put the medical supplies and the bullets is where you put the tokens for ammo. And so I think they did a really nice job with the art style for this, putting it all together, making it look hand-drawn. Very uh, classic style to it. I like the art style on it.
0: Yeah, I agree. It, it it's the the map is very unique. I, I like that a lot. And it does have a very uh, Mad Max feel to the game. A very 80s punk. So, uh, do I see also custom dice on this? Yep, there's some custom dice on here. Do you know what they do? No idea. Roll. I hope so. <laughs> I have not read the rules yet. <laughs> I really have not had time for anything. <laughs> I know there are the rules are available.
1: The rules are available. Yes.
0: Mm-hmm. Let's see how they look.
1: Well, I I know that they said that the rules are still going through graphics, but let's take a look real quick. Those dice are the threat dice that are rolled to determine when the marauders attack and how many wound tokens they get to they get to do, and they're also used to determine success when you're fighting and resting.
0: Yeah, this looks like a really neat game. A very thematic experience.
1: I assume this is a cooperative game? It is. It's a cooperative game.
0: Okay. It has an apocalypse phase. How cool is that?
1: Usually, apocalypse is not particularly
0: cool. Doom and gloom phase. I like it.
1: So that is Salvation Road. And
0: that was the Kickstarter report. So, the first game we're going to talk about is Eleven Seas for One, which is published, designed by David Harding, and web-published, or also published by Grail Games. It was entered in the 2014 uh, Solitaire Print and Play Design Contest. And did it win?
1: Something? It was only a
0: nominee. Okay. And it was in the contest, okay. Um, this is a very small micro-game, very light game.
1: Oh, wait, it was actually, it was nominated for the Golden Geek Best Print and Play Award. Yeah,
0: so Eleven Seas for One was in the 2014 Solitaire Print and Play Design Contest and was actually the winner of the Best Small Games category and the second best
1: overall game.
0: It was also and, n- nominated... Yeah,
1: it's also nominated for the 2014 Golden Geek Awards for Best Print and Play.
0: Nice, so this this is a very well-loved game. Um... And it's a very small game. It is a 13 cards total in the game, and two of them are just used for scoring. So in this game, you are the maid to lady, Agatha Smith, uh, your, your Gruvsner. And you just find out you're, she is holding a tea party at 11 o'clock, and that's only 15 minutes away. So you've got to get all the tea card and everything ready in the next 15 minutes. Um, and so in this game, basically what you're doing is you're sorting all the cards in order. So this game brings 11 cards that represent the tea trolley and the things on it, and two scoring cards. You've got 15 minutes to to get all the stuff organized and in order and put on the tea trolley. And you're going to basically do that by having all the cards shuffled and then placed next to the tea trolley, and now you have to put them onto the tea trolley in order. Um, each time you put a card in the trolley, it's going to take up one minute. Uh, and also a couple of the ways you, this is one other way you could actually have the clock advance. put your goal is to get all these cards on there the each card has a really pretty picture, very very light colored I guess this is colored pencil art, and it'll have a number on the card, the picture the the title, and an action that you take when you play the card to play the game, what you're gonna do is you're gonna shuffle you're gonna play the tea trolley and then you're gonna shuffle the other ten cards and play them in line next to it. Play them all face up. And now, the way the game goes, first at the beginning you could move any card to the front of the line if you want to, and that's gonna take up one minute if you do that. After that, you're gonna go through phases that you're gonna repeat. Um, Each phase, the first thing you could do is you could choose to, well, the one thing you could do is, each phase you got three choices. You could either play the card to the tea trolley. You can only do that if it's the next card in numeric order. Um, If you choose to do that, it's going to take one minute to do that, and then each card is going to have an action. You do whatever the action says. The second thing you could choose to do is you could flip the card over and not play it to the tea trolley. That's going to also take up a minute. The third thing you could do is you could discard the card. If you discard a card, it does not take up any time. However, you can only ever discard three cards.
1: Well, you can only have three cards discarded at once.
0: That's right. So it is possible to get cards out of the discard pile, and that would basically free up one of those three slots. Um, and so this is the way you're going to play it. Each turn, you'll, you'll look at the first card after the tea trolley, do one of the three things with it, and then go to the next phase-up card on the tea trolley. Um, and again, choose one of the three actions, and then go to the next face-up card in the tro- next to T-Trolley, and take one of the three actions and keep going until you reach the end of the line and all the cards are face-down, at which point you pick up all the cards after the T-Trolley, shuffle them up, lay them out again, and start over from the beginning. And that is basically the whole game. Um, it doesn't sound like much, um... In honesty, it isn't a whole lot, really, but it's still a light, fun game. What makes it interesting is that all the different cards have different actions, and you need to figure out how to use those actions
1: to your well, advantage. What's an example of some of those actions?
0: Um, for example, the card number two, the T, if you place that onto a trolley or choose to just flip it over and use the action, it lets you flip over any other card in the pantry face down. So you might find that the next card isn't too bad, but the card following that in line is a really harmful card for you. You really don't want to use that card. You kind of want to just ignore it entirely. You could use a T to flip over a card you dislike and go over it and ignore it for now. Um, Number six, the Fine China. When you play that card to T Trolley or if you choose to just do the action and flip the card over, let you shuffle the whole pantry. So that one's handy. If things aren't going your way, you could just choose to somehow get that card to the front of the line and shuffle everything up
1: and rearrange a line. Hopefully the next time around it's better. When I played it, I wasn't actually sure about the rule for that one. If you're shuffling up the whole pantry, do you turn the whole pantry face down, even if you have some face-up cards?
0: You you pick up all the cards face facing the same way, shuffle them, and then lay them out face-up again. So you're resetting it to
1: the beginning, sort of. Okay, so they all go back face-up, even though some got put face-down. Yep, that's right.
0: Um, so it's a really, really simple game, really fast. Pr- playing it probably takes five or ten minutes for a whole game. Um, and I really like this game a lot. It's so light, it's so silly, there's nothing to it. I'm surprised I enjoy it. The art is very... I don't know how to describe it other than pretty. It's very pretty, fine china, and tea cakes and and things like that and it's just it's nice and i found that when i'm playing it i'm focusing on the cards and i look up and suddenly i i feel like wait a minute i'm not really in a english manor house huh <laughs> and i it really actually had that reaction for me where where i i was able to escape into the game for a couple minutes
1: yeah i also like the uh the hand-drawn style of the card. I believe that these are all the art from a different game, Elevenses. I think it's the same art, but that the actions on the cards are different. Um, that it's the Elevenses for one actions instead of for the Elevenses.
0: Now, that is my understanding also. We, we didn't mention it, but it is, is worth saying. There was another game called Elevenses that was published by Grail Games, designed by the same designer. It was a Kickstarter game that was released. It is a multiplayer game. I have never played it myself, but I. Uh, our
1: understanding is it uses the same art, just the card's a little bit different. But I believe that you, when you're playing through, you get to pick any card in the line and spend a minute putting it in at the front of the line.
0: Not exactly. At the beginning of the round, you could do that. You can move any one card to the front, you spend a minute, and then you could now put it on the trolley. But after that, you cannot move a card to the front again until you've made it through the, to the end of the entire line. Which oh, does not happen wrong. often at all.
1: Oh, then I was playing it wrong. Okay. It,
0: I do not find it a hard game. I, it's it's pretty easy to win. But to me, it's more of a puzzle. And, you know, I will eventually solve it. And that's fine. The, the challenge is in how how well you could score. I believe the score is how many cards you actually put into the tea trolley plus how much time you have left. One thing to keep in mind that's interesting, I think, is there's 10 cards that need to go into the trolley. Each card takes one minute to put it on the trolley, except for number four, which takes two minutes, so you know you're going to use up uh, 11 minutes for sure if you're going to win. That only leaves another four minutes to play other actions. So you only have four other actions you could do the whole game, other than the, uh, the actual putting things on the
1: trolley. Assuming you want to be able to get the highest score possible.
0: Or, or just finish in, in time. And not get fired.
1: Well, I don't even think that's enough <laughs> to get fired.
0: Or to not get fired. I don't know. I wouldn't want to get fired. One moment. <laughs> I like my job.
1: I'll get you a second. Because I think that... Give me a second. I think <laughs> that under the rules, if you only get um, four points... If you, get, if you only get 11 points, then you still are in serious risk. Just a second.
0: Is it in there? I didn't remember even seeing that.
1: Yeah, it is. Yeah, I think that actually if you only get 11 points, um, which is just oh. a matter that you manage to get all the cards onto the tea trolley, but you spent all of your time doing it and you only get 11 points Um, you have performed as expected but you haven't excelled if you even get one off then you risk getting replaced the madam is disappointed yeah so (laughs) you have to do better than just getting all of them on there you have to not spend all of your time doing it so you really have to spend only 3 actions in a game that's right, which which can be tricky. It could really be tricky
0: depending on how the cards are organized, and, and you know, it's a silly game. It really is, and I think that's so much uh, of the fun of it for me. Now, you know, one thing is, th- this game is about tea, and uh, I listened to another podcast called the China History Podcast, and they recently did an, a series about, I think it was about eight or nine episodes on the history of tea in China, and, and it, it was really interesting. A lot of the history of how tea was discovered and invented, and, and all the uh, rituals that they go through in drinking tea, and how it's prepared. And and it, it was really fascinating. It goes into the history of getting it into the England and UK, and and what went about that. Yeah, it's worth checking out. It really is. And I mean, so that's 11 seasons for one. There's, there really isn't a whole lot I about to say. It's a really tiny game. If you're interested in it, stay
1: tuned to the end of the show, because I'm going to be giving away a couple copies of this. The next one that we want to talk about, also another print-and-play game, was X-Hour Xenostrike. And this is another one that went up in the 2014 um, print-and-play contest. I don't think it actually won anything, unfortunately, but I think it's actually a really good game. Um, The theme of this one is that you get to control two uh, mech suits, and you're trying to clear out the aliens from an area. Now, there's a base game of it, the basic version of the rules, And in the basic version of the rules, you get to play a mini Yahtzee game to begin off with. And one of your mech suits, it's called an ape, um, one of your mech suits is triggered only when you get a pair of dice, and the other one is only triggered when you get a run of dice. So you need a run of three and a pair of two. And the other die that's left over you'll get to allocate to the spawning die, which is what allows more alien eggs to come out. And you want to play this little Yahtzee game to make sure that you get the highest possible run and pair to get the most possible actions out of your apes. Um, your your ape units, your mech units, are able to spend those actions to walk around. It's a little grid-like board, and all you'll have one alien prowler starting in the middle of the board along with your two suits, and you'll be able to use the mech suits to travel around to the other sides of the board and... Uh, launch missiles or flamethrowers at the aliens to blow up their eggs and to blow up their, um, their full aliens. And the goal of the game is to be able to blow up all four of these sentinel aliens, which are the aliens in the far corners of the game. And once you've blown up all four of them, if you haven't managed to lose by that point in time, then you will have beat the game. Unfortunately, you'll lose... Each turn, I said you'll set aside a die for spawning. Each turn, the uh, spawning die will be used to spawn more eggs. And actually, the lower the die, the more eggs will be spawning, so you want to try and roll high again. Um, If you spawn an egg onto one of the four spawn sites, which are in the four corner of the game that already has three eggs on it, then you lose. And if you don't have enough eggs to spawn out, because it only comes with uh, eight eggs so then you'll also lose. So you want you have to keep destroying those eggs to prevent the game from being lost, but at the same time, that's not the objective of the game. The objective of the game is to destroy the alien sentinels that are in the corner of the board of the game. Also, um, you'll be, as you're traveling around, so one of the aliens will range across the whole board. He'll basically roll to come back to the center each time, and then he'll shoot off in a random direction to prowl around if you have end your turn near any of the aliens, they'll get to take a shot at you. And if they damage one of your units, the, if they blow up your flamethrower unit, so then you don't lose the game, you just are—you have really bad chances at that point. But if they blow up your main unit, so then you also will lose the game. Now, the game itself is pretty simple. Um that it's still, for me, it's actually still difficult. I haven't, I'm I'm not really good at this game yet. I've only had a chance to play it for a little bit. I'm hoping to get better. Um, but it's pretty simple. The, the idea of you roll, you move them around, you let them go. Pretty simple, very basic, very simple mechanics, but there's a lot of things that you can add to it. Now there's the, in the advanced version of the game. So it also comes with some locked doors, some fragile doors and some mission cards. So with the locked doors. There's four doors on the far side, and so that gives you cover, but you also can't walk around it. So you have to move in a little bit or move back if you want to hide. Um, And then there's also the, the fragile squares, so your mech suits can't walk through the fragile squares. So now, again, you have to walk through it. And since you can't move diagonally, so it'll take you some extra time, it'll make it harder to run around the whole site. And because it takes more time around the whole site, then you're not going to be as good getting around. But I don't think really either one of those really add a lot of dynamics to the game because it still keeps the game as really simple. I know that for me, because those locked doors are all the way at the end of the of the board, so it didn't, it didn't really affect me much. Um, same with the spawning ones. I think I was able to avoid those even though you can't walk all the way to the end of the board because the corners of the board are impassable. The spawning sites are impassable. You can't go there. Um, but even so, I didn't really find those getting interacting with me so much. What was really neat as this was actually added on late to the print-and-play contest entry is the mission cards. So what the mission cards do is it comes with ten special missions, and each one of these actually changes up something about it. And you can either do these as a campaign where you go through each one in order, or you can deal yourself out ones at random and shuffle them up. So at the most simple, which is the first one, it's just you only have eight turns, and so it comes with the turn marker on the card to be able to track along. And if you don't Finish off the whole game if you don't beat the aliens by eight turns, you lose the game, but some of the other times it'll change stuff up because it could add in um some extra sentinels or make the sentinels move around um or it could have the uh the some new aliens, some xeno huggers or crushers or spitters or queens. Or it could be that there's now uh, another friend that you have to rescue. And so these really changed around. So doing it shuffled up at random or going through the campaign, it made it feel really different and really dynamic. So I really like these missions. It gives it a lot of difference and gives the game a lot more last. So even though it's a really simple game, having it, having these extra missions it really changes it up and makes the game a little bit more deep. It's not so deep. It's still a really basic game. It's only print and play, and it requires only a very few components. I'd still put this in the category of a small game, not as small as 11's is for one, which is only really 11 dice. This is still a pretty small game. It's got... 11 cards. Not dice. 11 cards, not dice. Sorry, 11 cards. Um, It's still only got a few things. It's got only a couple tokens, which I personally use some cubes for. So it's only got a a couple tokens involved and just the 10 cards and then the one board. It's, It's just a one letter size board. So it still comes out to be a pretty small game, so it's still pretty simple. But throwing those mission cards really gives it a lot more uniqueness to the gameplay, so it's not the same thing each time.
0: Yeah, it looks really neat, it, and it really looks like it's simple to put together and give it a try.
1: A shame on me for not having done that yet. Definitely shame on you. Um, I know that I don't use a, a D4 for it. It does require a D4. Um, you probably have a spare one. Uh, I just use a D6 and rerolls roll some 6s. Yeah, that works. So yeah, that's a neat game. That's a, I'm definitely going to try that. Yeah, I'm a little surprised that this one actually didn't get any of the awards or even third place. For it. I think that it must not have been nominated or something. I don't really know what happened because for me, I think this is a really neat game. It's really simple. I play it with just some colored cubes instead of the tokens. But yeah, it's a really neat game.
0: Cool, okay. And now you talked about this game with
1: Morden, didn't you? Yes, I did. Okay. Um, so I know that Morden had a chance. That we actually picked these games because uh, Morden had previously reviewed these and he recommended them as some print and place to look at. We want to take a chance to review some print in place. This is actually his recommendation.
0: Nice. Okay. I look forward to hearing about that,
1: to hearing that. All right. So let's go ahead and uh, get more in here and we'll talk with him a little bit. All right, I'm here with Morten so, uh, Pedersen, the designer of various solo variants and a popular blog editor on BGG, as well as a fellow member of
2: the one-player game. Yeah, well, oh, well, that's a long That'll story. Finish. Thank you for uh, me It was, was a kind of here. coincidence, actually. It was my pleasure. Uh, glad
1: that we were able to have you on. I know that we've been trying for a while to get you on.
2: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we, we did. We did have some troubles getting the date set up.
1: So I know that you've designed quite a number of different games and variants and solo variants for games. Uh, what exactly have you designed?
2: Well, I have designed a ton of games that no one but myself has ever seen, (laughs) and I've been doing that for something like three decades. But uh, things that have been made publicly available, I made one small print-and-play game called Endless Nightmare. It's just a very simple solo push-your-lock game that I entered into the 2013 Solitaire Print-and-Play contest, and then I've designed a few solitaire variants. Uh, for games published by uh, Stonemaier Games. I did one for Viticulture, which has been published now. I did a solo variant for Between Two Cities, which has been funded on Kickstarter and will arrive later this year. And then currently, I'm working on a solo variant for Euphoria, together with my friend David Studley. And that solo variant will be part of a full-on expansion pack that we're designing for Euphoria. So uh, that's basically it.
1: And how did you get into designing like that? Those variants with Stone
2: Myers? Yeah, well, (laughs) that's a long story. Uh, It was quite a coincidence, actually. The game Culture is a game about running a vineyard in uh, Tuscany. And when Jamie Steckmeyer launched that on Kickstarter uh, back in the summer of 2012, if I remember correctly, uh, I had just returned from a vacation with my family, and we had been to Tuscany, and we had visited a vineyard down there, so it was a fun little coincidence for me. So because of that, I looked into the game, a game which I probably would have ignored otherwise because it didn't have solo playability. But then I got to talking with uh, with Jamie, Jamie Stegmaier, the creator of the game. I asked him whether he would release the rulebook, a draft of it, and he did, and I read it. And I can't read anything without... Also proofreading it, so I made a lot of notes about uh, typos, and uh, I, s- I sent them off to Jamie, and he responded, and we had some back and forth, and yeah, it turned out we we hit it off, uh, had fun talking to each other, and I did a P and P of uh, of Witchy Culture, played it with my wife, who loved it. She's normally not a not a gamer, but she really loved Witchy Culture, so I wrote a, a review of the game. And I continued talking with uh, with Jamie after the campaign ended. And we talked about game design in general and about Stone my games in general. So uh, my talks with Jamie were probably the biggest factor in getting me interested in game design on a more serious level. And at the same time, I w- was getting into solo gaming. And particularly the game Dawn of the Sets from Victory Point Games inspired me to start trying to design a similar game with an Aliens theme Uh so designing that game and talking to Jamie really got me serious about uh, doing game design.
1: And just so it's clear, you're talking about Jamie Stegmeyer, yeah. who is the man behind Stonemaier Games, Ex- right?
2: Exactly. He's uh, the co-founder of Stonemeyer Games and the designer of Michi Culture and uh, Euphoria.
1: And did you meet with him in person, or you guys just spoke over the internet? It
2: has just been uh, several thousand emails over the, the past three years. We've, we've never met, we've never talked. Uh, I'm more of a text guy.
1: You said that you were designing a zombie game. Is that something that Stonemaier is going to be releasing, or no, no chance?
2: Uh, no, it's, it's not for Stonemaier. It's, uh, and it's, it's not a, a zombie game. It's inspired by a zombie game. It's uh, inspired by the zombie game Dawn of the Sets. That it, uh, Dawn of the Sets is based on a game engine called States of Siege. Right. And there's a whole series of these games. They are tower defense games. Uh, and I really like Dawn of the Sets and that series. And it inspired me to uh, start making a game with a theme taken from the movies Aliens. Sort of taken from there. Of course, I would get into a lot of trouble <laughs> if I actually uh, used that that movie directly. But I was inspired by it and by the mechanics of Dawn of the Sets Because I think they fit that the second movie in that series very well. So I've been working on that on and off for something like three years. But it no, has nothing to do with Stone My games. It's... Uh, just something I'm doing for my own fun. If it ever gets finished, maybe I'll send it off to Victory Point Games, who have published all of the sets.
1: Have you had any conversations with Victory Point Games about it before, or no?
2: No, Not about this game. I, about other things, uh, but not about it. Uh, this game. I I want it finished, or at least close to finished, before I, uh, I contact anyone about it. So right now it's just me messing around with it on and off over a period of three years.
1: Was it originally your idea to make solo variants for the Stonemaier games, or did they have that idea first?
2: Uh, it was actually a, a playtester for Tuscany. Tuscany is an expansion pack for Culture, and while that was uh, undergoing playtests, one of the playtesters, Todd Schoening, I think he was called, uh, suggested the idea of making a solo variant, and he actually also suggested one of the mechanics that made it into the final solo variant. So he suggested that to Jamie, and, well, Jamie, his thought is not solo gaming. He's not a solo gamer himself. But since he knew me fairly well, and knew that I was into to Solitaire game design, he asked me whether I wanted to have a go at it. And I thought it could be a fun challenge. I had been thinking about it before. So I, I took on the task, and uh, it ended up as a, as one of the expansion modules in the Tuscany expansion pack.
1: And what do you think convinced Jamie that it was something worth including in the expansion?
2: Well, that's a good question. I'm not sure, actually. At that point, I myself wasn't really sure it was a good idea. Um, I was somewhat doubtful that it would actually help out my games to have a solo mode. Um, but then again... We thought that it wouldn't add that much to the cost. Initially, the only extra cost we would add to the game would be a rule sheet. Because uh, my original plan was to reuse some of the cards uh, from the game to control the artificial opponent. Um, So it would be very cheap to add it. Uh, Then later on, Jamie suggested that we instead made an extra set of cards to uh, control the artificial opponent but at this point I think it was just well it could be fun doing this and maybe it'll work maybe it won't Uh, and then after Tuscany hits we we got convinced that it was a good idea but we when we set out I I don't think any of us were really sure whether it was the right thing to do or not
1: what convinced you that was a good idea
2: Uh, the response (laughs) uh, the response has been really great once it uh, it's starting hitting the the baggers of the Kickstarter and going into retail a lot of people have said some really nice things about it, and has been awesome for me to st- to see that. I see people on board game geek say that they have bought the game and the Tuscan expansion pack because of the solitaire mode. That was been one of the things that has convinced me. And uh, since making the solo variant, I've been looking a bit more into uh, how solo gaming is doing, and it seems to me that uh, solo gaming is definitely on the rise in the board game business. I, I did a, g- a guest post on this topic for uh, for Jamie Stackmeyer f- for his blog, where I wrote about the, the importance of uh, including solitaire playability in uh, board games that goes on Kickstarter. And uh, one of the things I did for that post was uh, look into the database on BoardGameGeek and uh, find out what fraction of games published each year has solo playability. And I looked at the past 20 years, and it turned out that about 20 years ago, this fraction was about 10%. So about 10% of all games released back then had solo tab playability. And now that uh, fraction is up to 19%. So that has been a a rather large rise. Um, I don't know whether you saw the vote that was done on solo-playability for the Kickstarter for the game Tiny Epic Galaxies. I most certainly did Yeah, because I think a few thousand people uh, participated in that vote and the the vote was about whether uh, a certain stretch goal should include solo playability in the game or a 5 player mode and I think to most people's big surprise, uh, the the solo mode won out, it was a very very tight race, it went back and forth all the time, but in the end the solo mode got just over 50% of the vote. Uh, and, and that was uh, was, one, was one of the things that convinced me that uh, solo playability is actually quite an important factor in getting people to buy games. Um, so since then, I don't think there has been any doubt for Jamie or me that we should strive to include solo playability in the Stone Stonemaier games.
1: So the data pretty well shows that a lot of people want solo games, but what do you think is causing this rising trend for more solo games to be wanted?
2: Well, that's a good question. Uh, <laughs> I, I think it's... I, if I speak for myself personally, then if we go back four or five years, then I scoffed at the idea of solo gaming. I didn't really see the point. Why not just play a computer game uh, if I'm to game on my own? But then I actually tried it out Uh, Read something about it On uh, on Board Game Geek And I tried it out And I turned out I'd have been wrong Solo gaming was awesome And I think That what we're seeing Is that uh, There's been a hardcore group Of people that have started Getting vocal on Board Game Geek And other people are seeing that And say Hey let's try this out Then they try it out They also see that it's fun And uh, So they start talking about it and, And more and more people See that well This thing that we thought was a bit weird Is actually quite fun And so it grows Uh, So I think something like that might be going on That it's the internet and the community building Around solo gaming and the word of mouth That has been building up for a few years now We can also see the membership numbers Of the one player guild on BoardGameGeek They have been exploding in the past year or so And I think the one player guild just... uh, got to be the third largest guild on board game geek if i remember correctly that's right uh, um but other than that i, I think it's, it's, it's hard to say why this is happening
1: so it seems like the trend starts with the players as opposed to starting with the publishers yeah, is that correct that,
2: that's how i'm seeing it i'm not an industry insider so uh, don't trust my opinion on it but th- that's how it looks to me
1: well you're inside of at least one game publishers mind
2: yeah, well, yeah, I talk a lot, lot to Jamie, uh, but I'm only attached as a, as a freelancer. Uh,
1: and you said that you had data on how many games are coming out with solo, with solo variants or solo games being published on BGG, correct?
2: Yeah, yeah, that, that has gone up from ten uh, percent of games being published twenty years ago with the uh, solo playability to nineteen percent being published now, right now with the, uh, with solo playability os. I should say that 19% of the games being published so far this year has solo playability. Um, So that's a a rather large rise, I think.
1: Do you think that solo gamers should be trying to continue to push this trend or that they should just let it develop naturally?
2: Yeah, well, well, please push it. Please push it. (laughs) I, I think the more community we build around solo gaming the better I'll get, and the more we tell publishers that there's actually a large group of people who would like to buy more solo games. We would like to buy the games published if they include solo playability. The more people who tell publishers that, the better, because the more solo games we will have and the better solo games we'll have. So, uh, yes, please spread the word.
1: And... For Stonemaier Games in specific, or even if you know in general, how do you want solo gamers to reach out to publishers in that way?
2: I think uh, making your voice heard on Board Game Geek is a very good first step, and I think a lot of publishers read what's going on about their games on uh, on Board Game Geek. But also writing mails directly to the publishers, I think, would uh, be a good way to raise awareness at the publisher that there's actually a market here. And I think uh, commenting on Kickstarters contacting people creating Kickstarters and saying, well, I'll, I'd back this if it had an, a nice solo mode. I think that could uh, could help.
1: So you said that you're a solo gamer?
2: Yeah, uh, since three or four years ago, I have been primarily been a solo gamer.
1: What do you mean by primarily?
2: I, I still play multiplayer games every once in a while. It's just that after my son was born about five years ago, it was harder to uh, find time for game night all my regular gaming buddies also had kids. So all of a sudden, it was hard to uh, get our calendars coordinated and uh, have regular game nights. So I started playing less less board games. And then I thought, well, why not try uh, a solo game? And so I bought the game Lord of the Rings, uh, the living card game from Fantasy Flight Games. I tried that out. I actually thought that I would be a bit disappointed in it, but it turned out it was very, very fun. And so since then, I have been playing maybe 95% or more of my gaming time have been uh, solo gaming.
1: You play any with your son?
2: Yeah, to some extent. Um, some of the games is a bit too advanced for a five-year-old, but sometimes I can sort of tell him a story based on the game, tell him what's going on in, mm-hmm. in the game. Um so now we're fighting off the dragon who's attacking our castle or something like that, that he can relate to. Um, in a game like Dungeon Roll, he enjoys rolling the, these nice custom dice. And I can... Sometimes I simplify the game a bit when I play with him. Uh, but his attention span is, is not that great. <laughs> so <laughs> he tends to lose interest after a while. Uh,
1: I definitely understand yeah. I have a four-year-old daughter myself who likes helping me with my games, so I definitely understand. (laughs) Okay,
2: yeah, helping. (laughs) Yeah.
1: So do you have any favorite games?
2: Yeah, um, I'm asking about uh, multiplayer or solo games. Either. Whichever stands out in your mind. Well, we could start with multiplayer games. Back in the day, I really enjoyed Puerto Rico. In the group I was playing it, we had this long series of someone coming up with a great strategy and then someone finding a counter-strategy and then a counter-counter-strategy and I, I really love that when we are playing it over the month um, then a few years back we played a lot of uh, Warhammer Invasion at work because it, it fit very well into being a, a busy dad because you can basically play it in 20 minutes after work before you go home and you can also play it, so to speak, when you're home at because you deck build. You prepare your deck for the next game. So it was a nice fit for uh, being a busy dad. And then, of course, Witchy Culture, which was uh, one of the games that uh, got me back into uh, board gaming for real and got me into board game design, because when I tried it out, I, I wasn't involved with Stonewall games at all. Um, so... Uh, that that also was a rather special game to me. Uh, for solo games, I think my favorite game is uh, Dawn of the Sets, which I mentioned previously. It's this uh, tower defense zombie game, and the thing I really love about it is that is uh, it sort of generates narratives, and it uh, has tons of cinematic moments. It it's, it feels sort of like playing out a zombie movie. And that that I really enjoy. It's very thematic. I also uh, like uh, the game Unirim Uh, quite a lot. It's uh, this nice, cozy card game that has a ton of variability because it has seven or eight expansions, depending on how you count, that you can recombine for a ton of variability. Uh, Then I like the previously mentioned Lord of the Rings, the living card game. In in that game, it's the uh, difficulty is a bit hit and miss. Sometimes it's too easy, sometimes it's too hard. But when it works, it really works for me, and it's uh, I think the theme really comes alive in uh, in that game. The theme of going on quests in the Tolkien wo- universe that that really works for me. And finally, I would like to mention Mount Builders. Uh, it's a game also in a stage of Seats series like Dawn of the Sets. But this time it's a historical game about the Mount Builder culture. Uh, it's the, the culture that uh, inhabited the United States before the Europeans arrived.
1: That's it was the Mount Builders, right?
2: Yeah, Mount Builders, yeah. Um, so this culture was flourishing in uh, the Americas before the Europeans arrived, and this game is about controlling one of the major cities in, uh, in that culture a city which is located around what's now St. Louis. what I particularly like about this game is, uh, first of all, that the internal balance of the game is very, very good. That is, you always have several options that seem equally good to you, so you have a lot of tough choices. And second, it uh, has a nice story arc, because uh, the game designers have built in sort of a free act structure just like the classical three-act structure and storytelling, where first everything is good, you build up your empire, then the enemy tribes arrive, some of the uh, rules in the game change when the second act starts to change the feel of the game, and you need to now start fighting off the enemies and try to keep your empire alive, and then finally the climax comes in the form of the Spanish conquistadors arriving, they're sort of the boss monster uh, game mechanically, and they really l- provide a nice climax uh, to the story of the game. So we have this free act story arc in the game that I find works really well. And then finally, what I uh, what I really like about it is uh, compared to other ga- games in the stage of Seed series is the thing that you are building up your own empire during the first 10 turns of the games while in other uh, state of siege games you are basically handed your starting position you're handed an empire pre-built by the designer but in this game you build it up yourself which to me means that I get sort of emotionally involved in, in this empire it becomes much more important to me to defend it so the games become more tense because it's my empire not the empire made by someone else So, you mentioned
1: three things that you particularly like about that one that you get a lot of choice when you're playing the game, that it has a nice story arc, that it evolves as you play through, and that you build up your own empire.
2: Yeah, exactly.
1: Are these aspects that you try and strive for when you're designing your own uh, variants and games?
2: Yeah, well, yes and no, because when I design a solo variant for an existing game, then in many regards, my hands are tied. Uh, I want to stay true to uh, the multiplayer experience designed by the original game designer. I don't want to end up in a situation where I'm designing a separate game that just happens to use the same components as the original multiplayer game. So it's tough for me to add a new story arc, for example, if the original game don't have a story arc. So... uh, so no, not really. In, in those cases, I, in those cases, I try to stay true to uh, to what the original designer did and respect his vision for the game.
1: What does that mean that you try to stay true to the original design? You're designing something different. It's a solo variant.
2: Yeah, but I I, I try to make it play like the multiplayer game. So instead of of changing up the multiplayer game. Uh, I instead try to simulate that there are other players there so that when you play it as a solo gamer, you actually feel like you're playing the same game as the multiplayer game. You make the same decisions you're faced with, the same obstacles and stuff like that. So basically, you're playing the same game. It it just happens that it's a set of cardboard that uh, you're playing against and not a human.
1: When you're playing through other games, do you find yourself picking out aspects and mechanics of that game to try and use in your designs?
2: Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, we take the print-and-play game, uh, key, or however it's supposed to be pronounced. Um, it's the <laughs> game. Yeah. Uh, I can speak Danish, and I can sp- speak some English, and other than that, I tend to mangle all the languages. We just do English around here. <laughs> Um, So this game, it it won the Solitaire Print and Play Contest the year that I also participated. That was in 2013. Mm -hmm. And it's a really great game. I can highly recommend uh, trying it out. But that game was the game that taught me that worker placement games can work in solitaire mode and can be tense. So from that game, I stole the mechanic of it having a deck of cards that controls worker placement of an artificial opponent. And uh, I've been using that for the solo mode for Viticulture, and I've been using it for the solo mode for Euphoria, that, that we're working on at the moment. So uh, that, that's a clear case where I, I borrowed, or got inspired, or stole, or whatever word you want to choose, by another game. I took a mechanic that I really liked.
1: And you're also using a similar type of style for um, between two cities.
2: Yeah, uh, between two cities is, is not a, a worker placement game like uh, Viculture and Euphoria are. But but yeah, it's as again we have a deck of cards that controls what your opponents uh, are doing. Uh, it's just not the cards doesn't tell where they are placing their workers. Instead. It, it controls which tiles they're choosing basically each card uh, specifies a rules uh, a few rules that you need to follow to determine which tile is chosen by the opponent in uh, that particular turn
1: and are there any other uh, game mechanics that you happen to have uh, borrowed
2: <laughs> yeah probably a ton of them <laughs> Uh, Anything
1: else that stands
2: out there? No, I think my key is uh, the, the really big one, one that was very important in getting me started uh, on doing solo variants. But you could say that most of my work is actually borrowing 98% of someone else's game because what I'm doing is actually taking a full game made by someone else and then just tweaking it just a bit so that it's uh, playable in solo mode. So most things I do is extremely derivative of what someone else has done, because I'm just taking their work and tweaking it a bit.
1: Both in terms of creating a variant and in terms of mechanics, you mean?
2: Yeah, yeah. uh, Because I I strive to do my uh, variants as simple as possible. So uh, it's actually fairly few mechanics that I add to each game. So uh, when you're playing one of my ri- variants, 98% of what you're playing is mechanics made by the original designer and I've just added a little bit to it.
1: So to you what makes a good solo game? What defines a solo game as being good?
2: Yeah, well <laughs> that, that that's a a big question. And it's uh I think it, if I could tell you exactly what made a good solo game for everyone then uh, I might not be rich because perhaps there's not that ma- much money in making solo <laughs> games, but I, at least I would be a famous solo game designer. Um,
1: well, let me ask you more specifically, what's the most important goal for you when you're designing a solo variant?
2: Hmm. Can I mention more than one thing? Sure, Yeah. of course. Um, okay, so, so to me personally, what's important and what I strive for is first of all a lot of the same things that's important for multiplayer games are also important for solo games so you want a good internal balance in the game meaning that you want to offer the player tough choices they need to have real options real choices that affect the the gameplay and then uh, personally I don't like when the decision tree I'm facing is too wide that is I don't want 50 different options at once. I might want 5, maybe 10 options at once uh, so that I'm not overwhelmed. So (coughs) those are design issues I think are also applicable to uh, multiplayer games. But solo games also have a few uh, challenges that are not faced by uh, multiplayer game designers. For example, I think that when you sit down to play with a group of other people, there's a natural tenseness to that that we don't have in solo gaming because many people, they don't want to lose to other people. Um, so that raises the stakes. You you want to beat your opponents. You don't want to lose in the public setting. So the, the stakes are a bit higher when you play against humans than uh, when you play against uh, a, a deck of cards. So I think that when you do a solo game, you should face the challenge that the game is a bit less tense than a uh, multiplayer game, and it compensate for that. So when I design a solo game or solo variety, I try to add a little bit of t- extra tenseness to the game. That how could do you be.
1: Add, how do you add that tension?
2: It, it could be uh, making sure that uh, the the player regularly faces a threat that might kill him. Um, so that he constantly perhaps not all the time but most of the time feel that oh things could go really wrong if I don't do this right uh, that that to me adds a lot of tenseness to a, to a game so that I not only have an end goal but also constantly have to fight off a threat that to me is a, a nice way of adding tenseness Um I did a variant for Viticulture, uh, a variant for my solo variant. Uh,
1: <laughs> you did a variant on the variant?
2: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, where in- instead of just playing the fixed uh, seven years that you play in the solo variant, and then compare scores with uh, the op- opponent, then instead each year you need to be have more points than the opponent has, otherwise you lose. So that's a variant you can play if you want some added tenseness to your solo experience. So each turn you need to make sure that you are ahead of the opponent. And that can lead to some rather interesting choices because you need to balance the end goal of winning the game with the short-term goal of surviving the current round. Um the next thing I think you need to face as a designer of solo games that you don't face as a multiplayer game designer is that in multiplayer games you have other humans that provide a natural source of variation in the game humans are unpredictable and you don't have that in a solo game so I think that in a solo game you need to add more what you could call mechanical randomness to add variation to the game or If you don't do that, I think you will end up with a game that quickly gets samey. So that's another issue I think that you need to uh, consider when you're doing a solo game. And then finally, for me personally, I think theme is much more important to me in a solo game than in a multiplayer game. In a multiplayer game, it's about socializing and competing with the other players, and the theme is not that important to me. But when I play a solo game, I really like being immersed in the theme of the game. Um, So for solo game... What helps you to be immersed? Basically two things. One thing is uh, having mechanics that support the theme. So while a multiplayer game to me can be fairly abstract, then I want a solo game to have thematic uh, mechanics. Mechanics that make sense within the theme And second, I really enjoy it when solo games tell stories. Like I mentioned with uh, Mount Builders, that has this nice free-axe structure that tells a story. Or Dawn of the Set, uh, that also, as I talked about, generates these very cinematic moments where you feel like you're playing out a a zombie movie. Things like that can really get me immersed in the theme of a game.
1: I imagine you would be a fan of a storybook, something like they use for Mice and Mystics.
2: Yeah, yeah, you should think so, but uh, I, I haven't really tried uh, Mice and Mystics. Uh, I've considered picking it up several times, but it seems to be getting uh, some mixed feedback on Board game Peak, So, uh,
1: But the idea of a storybook, though, would that appeal?
2: Yeah, yeah, that would definitely appeal. Uh, I played the game uh, Doctor Who Solitaire Story, game, I think it's called, uh, some years back, and that, that's uh, basically a, a storybook with a, a game added in, uh, and I quite enjoyed that. Uh, so, so yeah, definitely.
1: And you said that you want to have some mechanical randomness in the game. How do you usually prefer to create that randomness?
2: Well, I, th- I think the easiest way to do that, and a very common way, is to have a deck of cards. For my solo variant, where I have artificial opponents, I have a deck of cards that controls the artificial opponent. In uh, storytelling games, it's often an event deck. You draw a card that tells you which event is happening. Um, sometimes you might show the player these events a bit ahead of time so you see the next events that are going to happen. But that's a, a very easy way to add randomness to a game, simply just having a deck of cards um,
1: why do you prefer to use a deck of cards instead of something like dice?
2: It's not that dice don't work. Dice can also be a good source of randomness, but uh, deck of cards uh, are easier to control. It's easier to build a story into a deck of cards, I think, uh, than into a, a set of dice. In a deck of cards, you won't you can control whether a certain event will happen once or multiple times. You can uh, have the player create the, the deck... For example, you see many games that uh, build the deck in a three-act structure. So you have basically built three decks and place them on top of each other so that you can play through three different acts. You have that in uh, in Legendary Encounters, uh, the alien version. You have that in Mount Builders. You have that in We Must Tell the Emperor. There are many games that have the structure where it the way you construct the deck of car- event cards... Helps the designer tell a story, a structured stru- story, to the player. So you read a blog on BGG, right? Yeah, that's right. I I started a couple of years ago. Thematic solitaires for the spare time challenge. Uh, it's called a very long name, but it just about says what it's about. Uh, Thematic solitaire yeah, games. Thought about uh, a shorter <laughs> name? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I thought about a shorter name, and uh, well, I used to be a Java programmer, and if you know anything about Java programming, everything tends to have long names in Java. So, no, (laughs) I stick to my long names.
1: So, I know as part of that blog, you posted a series about how you design an autonomous system. Why did you post that? What was your goal for for posting that idea?
2: Well, I hope to inspire other people to uh, do solitaire modes for multiplayer games because that's what my... uh, Automata system is about that making artificial opponents for multiplayer games, so that you can play a multiplayer game solitaire. And I hope that by writing about how I go about doing this, I could inspire other people to uh, to do the same. Actually, right now, uh, a day or two ago, I I posted a guest post on my blog about another guy, Andrew Watson, uh, who has a used my method to, uh, to make a solitaire opponent for the multiplayer game, Cubist. And he's also trying uh, to tackle the game evolution. So it was, that was quite cool for me to see that someone actually did try to use my approach to, uh, to make a multiplayer game solitaire playable.
1: So, can you summarize what your approach is?
2: Yeah, well, it's going to be a summary because I wrote something like nine thousand words. I think in uh, my five part guide guide to uh, to the method. Uh, basically, if you want to read it, it's the first post is the most important one. The additional posts are examples and extra guidelines. But I can, I think, I can summarize all those nine thousand words with one sentence. So. Uh, the idea is that you try to add one or more artificial opponents that mimics the most important effects that other players have on you and then abstract everything else away. Okay. That might have been a long sentence, but it, w- it was just <laughs> one sentence. <laughs> that sort of what do you mean by abstract everything else away? Yeah, let me give an example. Let me start by step two in my process, because that asks you two questions uh, as, as the design of, of the Soul of Orion. So you after you've learned the multiplayer game and understood that well you ask yourself two questions first of all which effects of the other players uh, of the other players presence in the game are sort of the soul of the player experience for you as a player and uh, w- which aspects of the other players are actually not that important so i ask myself these two questions for the game Vigiculture. culture Culture is a worker placement game about running a vineyard. So, in this game, the places where you interact with, the, with your opponents, where they are important to you, where you feel them, is uh, on the action spaces, because they place their workers on some of the action spaces and thus block you from using the same action spaces. That's crucial to the play experience. And then you compete at the end of the game to have the most victory points. So that's also crucial to the experience. Everything else about the opponent actually doesn't matter that much. How their vineyard looks, it's not that important. What cards they have in their hand, that actually doesn't affect you all that much. So what I did was, was take these... Crucial aspects of the game, of the multiplayer experience And try to mimic them as simply as possible And then I cut out everything else So the the Awesomer, the uh, ofi- artificial opponent Doesn't have a vignette actually uh, It doesn't score points throughout the game It just has a number of points at the end It just doesn't have a hand of cards That's abstracted away just like the vineyard its running is abstracted away it's not present in the game because it's really not that important so you could say that what i'm doing is trying to set up a shell that uh, sort of mimics the point of interaction you will have with the other players in the multiplayer game but there's nothing behind the shell okay so so we okay. so only the things are there that you are interacting with when you play the game everything else is yeah abstracted away did that make sense? So it's
1: all based upon it's all based on what it is that you're actually interacting
2: with. Yeah, yeah. On, on which point of the game do you have some important interactions with the with the other players, and then try to mimic that as simply as possible. The your opponent doesn't need to have a a grand strategy or anything like that. You just need to feel the effects of the other player being there.
1: Do all the automa systems? Feel the same when you're playing them like for example playing an Automa in Viticulture and playing an Automa in Euphoria does it feel like you're playing the same system or do they feel different
2: I think you'd say that uh, they feel the same there are some differences but the base system is the same you have a deck of cards that controls uh, the worker placement of of the automas the opponent's Um, so that they block you from action spaces and interact with you like that, and they score a number of points that you need to beat. Um, There's a bit more to it in Euphoria than there is in Viticulture, but the base system is the same, so I I think that players would definitely recognize the system if they had played Viticulture and then tried Euphoria without knowing that it was the same people who who had done it.
1: Is it a good thing that they resemble each other, or would you prefer for them to be more dynamic? Hmm.
2: In a way, I, I think it's a good thing because I, I want the Atoma to sort of auto-play. I want it to be as easy as possible for the human player to manage the automa. He shouldn't spend time uh, doing bookkeeping for, for the automa if it, that can be avoided. So the more similar... The system is between games; the easier it will be to, for the player to get into the flow of managing the automa. So I think in, in that way, it's a good thing. That said, I I still try to put in some differences, uh, and the automa in between two cities is quite a bit different from the ones in uh, Viticulture and Euphoria. How do you mean? Where in uh, Viticulture, as I said, there's no vineyard for. For the autumn. It, it it has no hand of cards. There's basically nothing there, ex- except the interacting with you. But what about in between two yeah, cities? Yeah, in, in that game, uh, the t- you play with the uh, two autumners in in that game, and the, they two actually build a city together. Uh, the, the same is the game is about building cities. So uh,
1: and what's the name of the city just because I like it so much.
2: Yeah, you can pronounce it in different ways, Automa City or Osmacity. Uh, it's just a cute pun. <laughs> yeah, I I put in, I like putting in puns in my names, but uh, actually that got me into some hot water uh, at one point because uh, someone took offense at the at the name I I gave to uh, the, the female Osmand awesome between two cities. Uh, one of the proofreaders, so I I had to change the name there. Um, It wasn't, I really meant no offense, but I could see afterwards why it could be taken as uh, a bit offensive, so I changed the name. Um, Anyways, in in that game, you build cities with uh, each of two partners, the player on your left and the player on on your right, and so I I added in two automas so that you have two partners and these two automas, they then also build a city together and they actually build the the city. Not like in viticulture where there's no vineyard. In this case, they actually build a city. It's just uh, a simple city. uh, It's played by simple rules than the cities you are building yourself. And the purpose of, of that is, again, to keep the amount of bookkeeping you have to do as low as possible. But it is definite difference that you are actually building a city for uh, the Artemis.
1: And so this idea that you abstract anything that you don't directly interact with, is that same design structure present when you're designing, or should it be present when you're designing a solo game, or only when you're designing a variant?
2: Hmm. That's, that's actually an interesting question. I think that depends very much on the game. Um, but I think in general it's a it's good advice in solo games to try to abstract away as much as possible. Uh, if there is an op- opponent, then ab- abstract away as much as possible of the op- opponent, uh, because very few people enjoy doing bookkeeping on behalf of the game system. They want to play the game. They don't want to m- move uh, pieces around for an AI. So, so I think uh, yeah, it's I think it's good general advice. But of course, you need to. Uh, look at the specific situation in your game
1: and you've designed both games and variants which was which was harder to make uh,
2: making a game is orders of magnitude harder for me than uh, making a variant coming up with multiple different mechanics, making them fit smoothly together, make sure that the game flows well, isn't prone to analysis paralysis, that it's actually fun, that the interaction with other players if you're making a multiplayer game is good. There's so many things that you need to take care of when you do a, a game from scratch. While what I primarily do is make these solo variants for existing games That's so much easier, in my opinion, than what true game designers do. Because when I start my work, there's already a well-working game there. The mechanics are there, they already work well, the game is already fun at this point. I just need to apply a few tweaks to the game and then I'm done. So, I have it easy compared to uh, proper game designers.
1: One of the other things that you typically do on the blog, in addition to just you know talking about designing, you've also done a number of different interviews and and comments about other solo games.
2: Yeah, uh, that's true. I really enjoy writing about other games and uh, interviewing other designers to hear what they are doing. I
1: think it's rare that we get another uh, reviewer also on our show. We wanted to see if you wanted to take a chance to also talk about the other games that we reviewed this episode X-Hour Xenostrike at is for one for one
2: yeah sure so uh Xenostrike is a uh, is a game that's heavily inspired by the alien series of movies and the game you control two uh two enhanced soldiers who fight some aliens and that uh, try to keep them from spawning too many eggs and uh if you talk about the game a bit from a mechanical perspective, then I think this game takes elements from Pandemic. To me, Pandemic is uh, basically a game where you run around putting out fires while you try to achieve an overall goal. And of course, by putting out fires, I'm talking a bit metaphorically here. <laughs> um, and the Cino Strike is the same. You run around trying to put out fires in th- in the game while you have an overall goal. And at the same time, uh, Siege Strike adds an action point-based tactical combat game, and it adds Yahtzee. So basically, it takes these three things and mixes them up. And it might sound a bit weird, um, but it it does take these three things and then distills them down to their very essence. So it simplifies everything down to to just the essence of each of these mechanics. Um, And when I read the rules, I thought that perhaps the designer had gone a bit too far in in simplifying things. But when I played it, it worked out really well. Um, I really enjoyed playing the game, and the simplicity worked out very well. It just got the essence of each of these uh, games, and I quite liked that. You can play it in about 15 minutes. I felt that it was very tense, which is something I like in solo games. It sets up a lot of tough choices for the players within those 15 minutes. You have these situations where you're standing in one place next to some alien eggs and considering okay, sh- I really ought to stay here and kill off these remaining eggs here before I move on. But if I stay here, then perhaps I won't have enough time to, to handle the next hotspot. So you have a very tough choice between staying and fighting or, or moving on. And you have this action point allocation mechanic where you have an, a number of action points based on your dice rolled. So you have a very tough choice on how to assign these action points. And I really enjoy these kind of tough choices where you have two or more options that where you need to do them all but can only do one. So I'd say that overall it's a very nice and tight little game. And it's definitely one that I could see being commercially published with just a little bit of work. Because I think the one weakness it does have is that it gets a bit samey, because it is so simple. It, it does get a bit samey. The, the designer added some uh, some missions that shakes up gameplay a bit, but but just a bit. So I think if uh, if it, it took a good developer and gave him this game, uh, he could add a bit to it and have a really good game that could be uh, commercially published. Uh, and it was definitely one of my favorite uh, print and play games of uh, 2014. What about for... By chance, that happens to be my uh, my second favorite game, second favorite uh, print and play games of uh, of 2014. It's a completely different game. The only similarity is that it's also a small and quick playing game. Let me start by being uh, negative about it because, as I said previously during our talk. I like thematic games, and I like games with stories. um, And I like fantastical themes. So I like fighting the aliens in Xenostrike. I like escaping the dream labyrinth of Onirium, I like fighting zombies in Dawn of the Sets. I like going on Quest in Tolkien's World and Lord of the Rings, the living card game. So uh, when the designer David Harding wrote to me, and ask whether I wanted to uh, to try out his game about making tea. Well, let's just say that uh, the theme didn't really uh, <laughs> do it for me, so I was quite sceptical, to say the least, about uh, whether it was would be a game for me. And also, it's a sort of puzzly game, which normally isn't that much my kind of thing. But David Harding is a really nice guy, so. I gave it a shot, and I'm very glad that I did, because it's actually a very fun little game. It's a very small game. It's quick to print out and, and cut out. So it, and it's fairly easy to learn the rules, so you're playing very quickly, just like in uh, Xenu Strike. When I play it, I get this uh, nice, cozy feel, which is, in my opinion, actually kind of cool, because if there's one emotion I associate with uh, tea, then it's coziness. <laughs> so so I think it's actually quite... And you're not even from England. No, I'm not even from England. I, I'm not, not that far away from England since I'm living in Denmark. Uh, but but still, I, I think tea is very, very cozy. And uh, in Denmark, we are, we are very much about coziness. So I, I think that I end up feeling the theme of the game, even though the mechanics themselves are actually pretty abstract. Um, so I, I think that's...
1: It's, an interesting challenge
2: yeah yeah, yeah. It's, it's it's quite a neat a- a- achievement by uh, by david here that he can make an abstract game that actually ends up feeling like the theme because initially i my impression was, it was just an abstract game with a pasted on theme but when i played it i actually felt the theme and uh that was actually quite neat and i i hadn't really had that experience before with the game overall i i really like this game it's uh it's challenging, but it's not too brain-burning, so quite nice in that way. It feels sort of like making a crossword puzzle or Sudoku. It's just a fun game instead, uh, but it has some of the same feel. But I would definitely take 11 for one over a crossword word puzzle any, any, any day. And it also has one added advantage. It's so small that if you uh, sleeve the cards, you can put them in your back pocket and uh, take them for a walk. I've been playing this game in a park and in the local forest, which was actually quite nice sitting there in lost green surroundings and, and playing a nice little game. So, so overall, this, this come highly recommended from me as a, one of the best P&Ps from 2014.
1: Excellent. Very nice. Uh, well, thank you very much for coming to talk with us. Yeah, no problem. We really oh, just, appreciate it was on. fun, and thank you for the invitation. All right, so I am going to give away
0: two copies of 11Zs for one on the show. Um, you have two weeks to enter, and these are cards that I printed out through Printer Studio. They look really nice. What you'll get is 13 cards, and you'll get them in a Ziploc bag. Unfortunately, I'm keeping the nice little plastic case. Um <clears throat> But yeah, to, to to enter this contest, to get this game and see if you like it or not, just send us an email to albert at oneplayerpodcast.com or julius at oneplayerpodcast.com and tell us about your favorite kind of tea. If you don't like tea, that's okay. Tell us that anyway and just enter. We will not discriminate against you. Um, and we'll pick two winners and the winners will each get a copy of 11 C's for one.
1: I like passion fruit mango. That's
0: a good one. I like chamomile. I really can. Does that mean I'm entered? You're, you're entered. <laughs> <laughs> you're not eligible to win, though. Sorry.
1: Oh. <laughs> oh, stacking the prizes. I <laughs> so, all right, all right. So we got another solo story for you guys. Uh, this one's from Race from the Galaxy, and this is a game, a card game with a set of icons for it, which will determine which phase of the game that you're playing. And it does come with an AI-controlled sol- solo game. This one was posted up by Justin Garrison on the Solitaire Games The Table Geek list, and he posted up this, uh, this really funny interplay between various members of the theoretical Governor's Conference Room on Earth's Lost Colony. And I'm going to go ahead and read it off for you. And because there's actually quite a number of parts to this one being played, I'm asking Albert to also help me out with reading this one. Albert, you with me? I'm set. All right, here we go. Good morning, all. Comms officer, tell me what you tell me every morning, please. Well,
0: sir, Earth still failed to respond to our transmissions, and we've been unable to intercept any intelligence on the status of the planet.
1: Yep. Okay, well... Defense Secretary, give me the morning news.
0: Uh, Yes, sir, no domestic disturbances that we are aware of. There is talk of a worker strike at the factory, but I'll let the Commerce Secretary handle that bit. We do, however, have reason to believe that a military group calling themselves New Sparta may be planning to contact 525. We've been unable to ascertain their intentions, but the nature of the data we've received so far indicates that it may be run by an artificial intelligence. An A I Yes, the information is what you might call randomly consistent. We see repeating patterns, but the repetition is irregular. And anyhow, we have nothing pinging our satellites, and the galactic radar isn't showing anything but meteors and freighters for a good parsec or so. I'll let you know if we need to worry. Our exploration team did come across a lab across the systems that seemed to be used as part of the old Galactic Genome Project. It might be useful but we would have to send a recon team to properly scout it. may not be worth the effort, but under particular circumstances, the
1: benefits could be huge. Well, you know what? Let's just build a bank. If it's resources we need, we'll build a bank and have them lend the resources to us. Everyone cool with that? Of course you are. All right, next up, Commerce Secretary. Well, like the DS said, the workers at the factory are starting to get restless. They're not quite sure what purpose their novelty goods serve on a colony that has very little economic independence, and little to no intergalactic trade agreements. Those were all things Earth had in spades, but, well, they seem to have lost track of us. Nonsense. Everyone loves novelty goods. They're the backbone of any good tourist economy. But, but... Enough! Tell the workers that if they want to build something else, they need to pool their resources and build their own factory. Two months later. Can anyone update me on the status of the lab that was part of the GGP?
0: Yes, sir. Turns out it was a clandestine uplift lab. At least that's what the signage said when the Marines scouted it. An email was sent to the colonists to see if anyone knew anything about it, but no one had any information.
1: (sighs) Well, just abandon it. Let's put that money and personnel on a colony ship and have them go explore. Fair enough. Anything from Earth's comm officer? Um. Yep. Okay. I woke up with a, this morning with a new idea. Everyone ready? Terraforming robots. I've invited the staff geologist here to explain. Hello, everyone. I have to apologize for having absolutely nothing prepared. I did, after all, receive the call just this morning. Terraforming robots. Uh, well, they, uh, they, well, they terraform the uh, the planet, and they're robotic. So, uh, yeah, you don't need people to do it. it. Saves money in the long run. Excellent work. So any objection to having the factory put together a fleet of terraforming robots? Of course not. Put the order in to Commerce Secretary.
0: Beep, beep, beep. Governor, there's a call for you. It's the Admiral.
1: Put it through. Admiral, so good to hear from you. Good morning, all. Sir, I'm happy to report that the colony ship has come across a planet of spectacular mining potential. The mineral readouts are off the charts. Great news. What's the next step? We still need to complete the geological survey and take some samples further out from the ship. We picked up slight radiation in the atmosphere, so we want to make sure the planet is safe before we deploy any sizable workforce. It should only take a couple months, no time at all. Set up all the mines you can possibly get, you possibly can, with the tools you have on board. The transmissions from New Sparta are becoming increasingly ominous, and I fear they will be on our doorstep soon. Whether to invade or colonize, I'm not sure. But, sir, this could put thousands of lives at risk. Are you sure? Of course, I'm sure. Make it happen. Commerce Secretary, how quickly can we get a massive conglomerate up and running? Uh, what? A mining conglomerate. You know a group of businesses that all do similar stuff but in different ways? Uh,
0: yes, I know what a... Uh, how
1: long? I would, have to ch- I would have to check and see
0: who's doing mining business on 525. Given that our economy has been primarily focused on novelty goods, I don't know that there are many. If I may speak freely, and we are wise to pour massive amounts of resources into a mining effort... When we only
1: just found this new planet? The Admiral said, Get out! If you won't do as I'm ordering, then you'll just have to go start your own colony for the Earth to lose. I need doers on my teams. Defense, any new transmission from New Sparta?
0: There actually was a, uh, just one that came across the wire, sir. They're here. In the system! It's only a matter of days or hours before they are likely make planetary contact, if not Sooner.
1: Ugh, curses. This is all going horribly wrong. Get the Commerce Secretary back in here. I'm still in this room gathering my things. What do you want? Oh, never mind what I said about the mining conglomerate. We need a new economy and we need it now. How quickly can you set up a new economy? I, uh, w- what, what do you mean? A new economy. We can base it on consumer markets. What do consumers love? Uh, novelty goods. Exactly. Novelty goods. <laughs> oh, no, sir. Out the window. The ship... They
0: appear to have weapon or communications device activating. Something is surfacing from the hull.
1: Ah, shoot. (laughs) (laughs) I like that. (laughs) So that was a great little uh, write-up of the sort of chaos occurring on this little colony here. And so thank you very much to Justin Garrison.
0: That's right. I'll be contacting you to send you a one-player die. Uh, thank you for that really fun uh, session report there.
1: All right. So that's the end of the podcast. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Right, and we hope you, in you in enjoyed it. Thanks for listening. We love feedback. So we love hearing from you.